I, I know that most of you in this room are like Pam and I, that you have uh, uh, loved ones or friends that once we're walking with the Lord or, or maybe have yet to come to know the Lord, but they, they have drifted and uh, you're wondering what happens and how do we pray for them. Um, and Pam and I have always felt like if we can pray, God put, put the real deal in their path. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, not somebody that poses as a Christian. I mean the real deal. God put the real deal because, you see, we've got a lot of posers that, that claim to be Christians, but yet there's a struggle in their life that just doesn't add up. But, man, when the real deal is there, somebody must look at it and they must evaluate. And uh, I, I've shared this before, but it's been said before that, that most people come to Christ because of Christians but most people who don't come to Christ, it's usually because of Christians and those that give a false view of what it means. So we always pray, God, put the real deal in their path. And, of course, God always comes back when we pray that prayer to say, are you willing to be the real deal? Are you the real deal? And the real deal is that person that is that is exemplifying the life that God intended that we see in the Word and what His Spirit produces in us. And uh, we started... I walk into 1st John and uh we're going to be there today 1st John chapter 2 verse 15 is where we're going to start at but let me let me kind of bring you current some of you haven't been here you may be new to central and I want to bring you current you that it's been a few weeks because of Father's Day and because of Vacation Bible School so let me bring you current a little bit the the writer of this particular letter called 1st John was John okay that's that makes sense and uh, John is this same John that was one of Jesus' original 12. He was called the Beloved. He had a very close relationship with Jesus. He had, he had an incredible um, heart, it seems like, for loving people. But he was also called the Son of Thunder, so he had one of those mixtures in him. But the letter to 1 John was written to a, a church in a community called Ephesus. It was, a, it was actually a metropolitan area, very Roman in the way it was set up. It was one of those Roman outskirts, very fluent, also revolved around pagan worship, which involved a lot of sensuality and sexuality and hedonism and everything that goes with that. And so uh, he's writing to address these people because, here's the reason, they were second and third generation believers. Here's what I mean by that. They weren't part of those original eyewitnesses that walked with Jesus. These were... These heard the gospel from maybe one of those people, or they may be third generation. Somebody came to Christ, they shared the gener- with the next generation, and they've come to Christ. So these are people that didn't see Jesus walk the earth, except for John. I'm glad he was still around. He was, he was elderly at this time. And uh, what happened is, is because these people were starting to lose hope and wondering, you know, what's happened? Why didn't Jesus return? And these kind of things. There was false teaching that slipped into the church that really watered down who Jesus truly was as the Son of God, and many of these people were buying into it. And now John is going to write a letter to them to kind of help them to understand what a true follower of Jesus might look like. And uh, we, we, when we read the book, and I, I, I love it to see how, how John lays it out, but he lays out in there certain assessments. You know, assessment is something, you take your car in for an assessment, we got a problem, so they're going to look at it, figure out what's going on. The, the, the assessment that he lays forth uh, here in the Scriptures is, is to look at your life to see, examine it according to who God is and what His Spirit has done, is how are you in this? And we talked about three of these so far, and I'm going to remind you what they were. The first one was the light test. In other words, he said to walk in the light. And you may remember that part of that was 
If you, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In other words, it was to keep short accounts. In other words, you, you blow it. We all blow it at times. And, and what happens is that our heart is convicted. We come before the Lord. We agree with him that that's wrong. And we let that, that we walk in the light. We, we had that, that restoration. So that was the light test. Number two uh, would have been what I consider the walk test. The walk test is, are you walking in obedience to what Christ has said? You know, a life that is following after him will begin to resemble him. And are you walking in obedience with that? Okay. The third one was what we call the love test. Isn't that a good one? That, that uh, a true follower of Christ is going to love those who are other followers of Christ. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have one for another. So it's the love. Do you have a love for other? Are you one of those bitter, cantankerous, can't-get-along-with-anybody kind of people? And I, I don't know any in this room that way. Uh, but do you, do you have a love for others? So there's the love test that, that came with that. So I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, uh, excuse me, verse 12. And we're going to pick it up here, and we're going to read um, through into verse 17. And here's what it says. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let me stop there just a second, because that seems like a weird kind of writing. Uh, There's a possibility of two things. One, it was either a poem that was drafted, or it was a first century worship song. That existed because of the poetry and the repetition of what is here. You can see that. But there's a lot of meat in there, and we'll unpack that in just a second. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. We're going to kind of unpack this for a few minutes and look at two more of these assessments that John lays, lays forth. If you were to go down here to our nursery and start looking at the infants that are in there or baby that was born this week, you look at an infant and you look at it and you, you have no expectations of that infant. You don't say, kid over here. You don't do that. Eat your food. You don't, you, I mean, he's an infant. You, you do not have high expectations. All, in fact, they're high maintenance, man. You gotta feed them. You gotta change them. You gotta take care of them all the time. This is that infant that, the way he is. And you can, you can find them down there. Let's say though that that infant chronologically becomes an adolescent, teenager. But yet they are still acting like the infant. You, you would you would think that's ridiculous. There, there's no way that that is that is the way it's supposed to be. You would conclude this: either they are very sick, or they're on the verge of death. 
Because this is just the reality of a situation. If a person like that, and I realize certain things happen and, 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 and growth may be uh, stymied somewhere, but you automatically, you think, no, healthy things ought to grow. That infant and that adolescent and becoming adulthood ought to look totally different. And, and if they were that way, you would have think, man, there is something wrong. I think it's the same way spiritually. I, I think you cannot chronologically say, okay, that person is a mature Christian, that person is not a mature Christian, uh, in a chronological way. However, in a spiritual, biblical way, you are called to grow up. And so if there's a person who is a new believer in Christ, just like this past week at camp and vacation Bible school, this next week at preteen camp, young people are going to make decisions for Jesus Christ. They're going to come before the Lord and say, Jesus Christ, I know what you did for me. I ask you to forgive me. And I desire to follow after you. And their, their life is going to be transformed. The expectations of a new believer in Jesus Christ should not go too high because they are coming out of a, a world that, that has been one way and they're being transformed. It's like a person that's had a heart transplant, okay? They, they just had a heart transplant. We don't get them out from under the anesthesia and say, okay, man, go eat what you want to, do what you want to, just go. No, you put them in ICU, you watch them, you protect them. You know that that heart's got to take root. You know everything about them has to take place. And then finally, you, you uh, are able to release them. And so spiritually, it's the same thing. However, if there's a person who says they're a follower of Christ, and they have been a follower of Christ, they would tell you for years or since childhood, and they're now in adulthood, and there has been no picture of growth in their life spiritually, I would conclude either they didn't know Christ or they're very sick. And this is what John is saying here. We're going to look at this um, a little bit. And so I want, to, I want to just unpack this with you and see these two assessments that, that uh, uh, John lays out here. Notice, first of all, in verse 12, he says, Dear children, there, dear children is in verse 12. Keep your Bibles open. This will help you out. In verse 12 and verse 14, he uses the term dear children. That's the English translation. But these are actually two different words. The words in, in verse 12 mean born ones. And the ones in verse 14 actually mean those under instruction. So there are two different words here. So many people believe the first time he says dear children, because John has such a, a tender heart for the people, he, he's covering the whole, whole gamut. And he says, you, you understand forgiveness for his name's sake. That is so important. The Bible says in the book of Acts, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved, the name of Jesus. It, it denotes his character. It denotes, denotes who he is, and, and, and we, we come in his name. And uh, this is huge. I, um, I had uh, my neighbor down the street uh, several years ago. He, uh, he was going to go back to California and live there for a season, so he was going to lease his house out. Well, there was a pastor that is an acquaintance of mine, and I say acquaintance, uh, we know each other, that kind of thing, and he saw that this house was for lease. He went down there to that house, and he uh, uh, he's talking to him, and I know my neighbor says, well, you must know Mark. Oh, yeah, I know Mark, you know, I, I, know, I know, you know, he's a good friend and, and this kind of stuff. And so he leased the house on my name only to leave a $4,000 indebtedness when he had to get out of the house. That, that frustrated me, man. 
You know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That guy was depraved. It is, it is, is painful when somebody rubs your name, messes your name up. And see, that's the deal. We come to Christ because of His nature in His name. He is Savior. He's Redeemer. He's our Shepherd. He's our, our Healer. He's all of these things. And we recognize that name, and we have come to salvation through the name of Christ. But yet, do we have a tendency to blemish His name? I want to give you the first assessment we're going to look at right now. And we're going to call it the growth test. So if you're taking notes, just write down the growth test. And what John does in, in verses 12 through um, 14 in this little poem or song or whatever it is, he lays out that there's different, um, uh, different development that happens in the Christian life. And, I, and, and we're going to take this assessment together, okay? So I want you, as I go over these, I want you to think, who am I that, that is there? Because there, it's not like you're not on this page, but you are. And so let's see what he says. The first thing he talks about, he talks about children. He talks about the birth ones, those that are in, in, under instruction. In other words, those are new to the faith. Some of you have not been Christ followers very long. You, you, it doesn't matter chronologically how old you are. You just had not come to Christ, but you heard the life changing message. You said, Lord, I need you. You entered into his family. And that's who John is talking about. He's talking about those who have embraced forgiveness in the name of Jesus. They have come to know the father in an experiential way, not just a head knowledge, but they have a heart knowledge. Now they are young in the faith, uh, but they need much instruction and protection. Those that are new to the faith, uh, the, the church has been guilty of this so often, is that we, we get you to walk an aisle or we get you to be baptized, and then we say, okay, go get them, go get them. And they need a lot more instruction. They need a lot of help in this walking out. Because you know as well as I do, once you come to Christ, it's like you put this birthmark with a, with a target on you that the enemy wants to come against you. But yet we have his spirit and we learn to walk according to that. And, and so John talks about the first group of people is the children, the birth ones uh, that are there. The second group that he talks about, he calls young men. Now, women, I don't want to let you off here because uh, this is referring to those that are just, just older, young, maybe adolescent in their faith, have gotten their uh, strength and zeal of the faith that is there. They're very vigorous for God. They're, they're, they're out there on the front lines, man. They are going at it, and, uh, and this is who they are. Um, in fact, it, it says that the reason they're that way is because in verse 14 it says, The Word of God lives in you, young men, or, or adolescents in your faith. The, the Lord is in you mightily through His Word. And they said this, You have overcome the evil one. I mean, man, John's just really saying, You young people, you young in the faith that, that have got your zeal and your muscle and you're learning how to wield the armor of God, you are going at it. You are doing the right thing. And uh, he talks about how they have overcome the evil one. And this is a beautiful picture, man. I want you to see this. It's actually a picture, this terminology and words, is a picture of two kings, okay? They come to battle, okay? The two kings come to battle, and uh, one king overcomes and dominates the other king. That dominated king comes, and he is placed on the ground in front of the king that was the conqueror. And what he does, what he would do, is he would put his foot on his neck, and that would be the picture that I have completely, I have completely won this battle. 
I've completely devastated the enemy. And that's what that's what that's a picture of. He is saying, you young men in the faith, you adolescents of the faith, you full of zeal, you full of vigor. You're, you're getting strong in the Lord because of his word. You have overcome the evil one. Isn't that a great picture? Don't you love to see that? I mean, you love to see that strength that's happened. And, and so I ask you, are you, are you a young man, young woman in the faith? You, you've got that zeal. I mean, you are fearless. You're ready to go no matter what, uh, what God may ask of you. You're willing to go with it. Um, perhaps they have a little more zeal than depth, but they're accomplishing great things for God. So are you a child in the faith? That's okay if you are. I, it's not a chronological thing. Are you a child in the faith? How long have you been a child in the faith? Are you progressing? Have you become that young man, young woman of the faith? In your, you've got, gotten zeal and strong, and the Word of God's becoming strong in you. And then he talks about a third group. He talks about fathers. Now, this would be fathers and mothers, those overseers, those parents of, of others. And they've got, uh, they've got, they're rooted deep in Christ. Uh, through their walk and experience, they have gained wisdom. Many of you understand that. Their, their influence upon others is vast. I was, um, I was watching the College World Series the other day, and I was uh, uh, just kind of getting into it and watching it. And they, they show the coaches in the dugout a lot of times. And so I'm, I was looking at that uh, coach in the dugout, and I was watching those players out on the field. You know, I thought about the coach, and, and you could look at any coach and, and think, okay, he probably used to play the game. He probably used to be real good at the game. He probably uh, uh, excelled, uh, probably, to, to be where he is. But now, because of where he is, he's more in a place where he's not out there on the field playing, uh, but it's time for him to let others do that, and he gives the instructions from where he is. But yet, when they win, he wins. And so those who are parents in the faith, those that are fathers and mothers of the faith, they... And some of you, this will resonate in you because, uh, once again, it's not chronological, but it's, it's seasoned experience of life. You, you understand and you know what it's like to have the scars of the young adolescent growth. But you've come to a point of we don't quite have the energy and zeal and vigor that you used to have. There have been things that have, have maybe deep-rooted you in the wisdom and experience of the Lord. But you have tons to give to another group of people and, and there never is a time when you get on the sidelines and said well let that generation figure it out for themselves i've come to the conclusion that 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 one of the best things i can do in this season of life that i have is to help equip others to be able to do what god has called them to do and this is those fathers in the faith those those ones who have uh, become mature in the faith let me say let me say Four quick things about growth, right quick, because everybody needs to hear this. First of all is this. Our growth as Christians will make us look more and more like Jesus. Now, I'm not talking beard and sandals robe. We've gone through that in our culture. I'm talking about the character. I'm talking about the humility. I'm talking about the service. I'm talking about uh, an anointing that goes on their life. This is what God is doing. He who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it, and that's He's going to make you more like Jesus. Here's a second thought on spiritual growth. God will grow what he has truly birthed. Let me say that again. 
God will grow what he has truly birthed. I've known a lot of people who have jumped into church and jumped into Christian things and jumped into, uh, you know, Christian music. They listen to that, all this kind of stuff. They're trying to work it out, but they never had a regenerative time with the Lord where their heart was made new and, and they're just trying to work it out. I, I, I want you to know that God, those things that he has truly birthed, he is going to develop. Now, here's the third thing, and you're not going to like this. God will use whatever circumstances are available to grow you into his image. That is not comfortable. Because a lot of times we just think, oh, you know, these things have happened in my life. I can't believe they're happening. Most of us would not grow if we did not get uncomfortable. And we, when we get uncomfortable, the Spirit of God will push us into an uncomfortable place. We either get bitter or better in that. But I'm telling you, we are being refined into the image of Christ, even with those things. Here's the fourth thing of spiritual growth. If there is no spiritual growth, you are either spiritually sick or you don't know Christ. Mark, that's kind of hard. That's kind of hard. I know. I'm just, I'm just being a messenger. But if, you, if there is no spiritual growth, you're either spiritually sick or you don't know Christ. So that is the growth test. How you doing? You growing? Growing up, you becoming more like Christ. Many of you know people that once were a fire for Christ and now you can't even find them. They have no spiritual appetite at all. You see them. But I'm asking you today, how are you growing? Here's the next one. I, I call it the world test. Test five, the world test. And it says this, verse 15, do not love the world. And this is an habitual thing. Do not habitually love the world. Now, that, that doesn't sound right because John is the same one that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now John comes around and tells us as his followers, Do not love the world. Two different terms here. This world is not referring to sea and ocean and grass and, and air and clouds and even people that's not what it's referring to it is referring to the pagan anti-god mindset that this world has these people grew up under a roman oppression very sensual very uh, pagan anti-god this is what they were growing up under and many of the people were just embracing it what i'm about to talk to you about as i define this i'm telling you this is our day this is where we live. I think the reason that many people are no longer worshiping and pursuing God is they have fallen in love with the world. In fact, there was a guy in the Scriptures by the name of Demas, D-E-M-A-S, and Paul says, Demas is no longer with me because he fell in love with the world. And these are the three things that John tells us the world is like, okay? The first one is this. Uh, he talks about the lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh, it, in, in modern terminology, we would call this hedonism. It's the love of pleasure. Any kind of ism is a philosophy that you take under. So hedonism, the, the, the lust of the flesh, is that love of pleasure. It, you live life to gratify this depraved, sinful nature. Uh, lust is any strong craving. Lust is not bad. It, it's except what you lust after, Okay. Lust can be good if you're craving a, a correct thing, but if you're correcting the wrong thing, then lust is evil. And I know everybody, when you think about lust, is automatically thinks about sexual things, 
but it can also be an overabundance or, or, or overcraving for things like food or anything in this world that so appeals to the flesh that you just have to have it. And, and, and that's what hedonism is. It's all about pleasure. It's all about me. It's all about what's going to make me feel good. It's, 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 it's what's going to be in it for me. It's the appetite to extreme, um, is what it is. And, and, and this, this hedonism, this pleasure, you always want to take in and take in and take in. It, it, and it's like this. This is where it comes in even more. Well, um, you know, if you're not happy in your marriage, get out of it because, you know, it's all about me being happy. It's all about me feeling good. Marriage was not created to make you happy. Marriage was created as a picture of Christ's relationship with us, and it makes you holy as you walk it out. And so the, the, the world's philosophy is hedonism, pleasure, go after it, grab for all the gusto, get what's in it for you. Our students are bombarded with it constantly. Let the world revolve around you. And we're all bombarded with it. But what, what um, John is saying is here, do not let the, fle- the love for the lust of the flesh. That's what the world is all about. Now, the second one is this. He, said, he calls it the lust of the eyes which uh, we, we would say uh, in our modern way of looking things, we would say that's consumerism. In other words, what you see, you have to have. All marketing advertisers are built on the fact that you are a consumer. Now, consumerism just in itself is not bad. Once again, it's when you go to extreme. i got to have that. I gotta have that. I, I gotta have that. And we feel like our family has to have that. My kid has to have that. We gotta have that. Everybody else has one. We gotta have one. And this consumer mindset just comes. We don't even know what we want until somebody tells us what we want. And that's where consumerism is. Um, Jackson Brown Jr. wrote a little book that many of you may have read at one time called Life's Little Instruction Book. It was a New York Times bestseller, and one of his lines said this, I've learned that if you give a pig and a boy everything they want, you'll get a good pig and a bad boy. And that's usually the truth. You know, we think, I've got to have that. In other words, you're under the control of that old nature, so that you've got to have it, you've got to have it, you've got to have it. And like I say, advertisers bank on this, and, and it's like this. Here's the question I ask you about your consumer consumerism today do you own your stuff or does it own you do you own your stuff or does it it, does it own you i mean that's a question you've got to ask you really have to have that knowing that in six months i tell you what uh uh I, i i don't know what's popular until i go to the grocery store and then i see on the magazine rack before i check out they tell me what i need so that's all i got to do and every month there's a new diet every month there's a new something you know, you know, I'm being facetious, but that's where the consumerism gets you, the lust of the eyes. Here's the third one, last one, the pride of life. Uh, I call this humanism, which is, a, which is a God in our country. Humanism basically is this, the world revolves around me. I don't care what Copernicus said about the sun. It's, it, it revolves around me. It's all about me. I can do it. I can do it on my own. I don't need God. I don't need other people. I am who I am. And, and humanism, you know some humanists. Um, they, they just, they're, they're atheists at the core. They just believe that they can do it all themselves. And we so often fall into that trap of the humanism. Um, 
it's kind of like this. I've shared this before, but I, I share it with you again. Uh, dog and cat theology. Uh, you have a dog. How many dog owners in the in the house? Okay, yeah, good. Uh, a dog. Dog thinks this. You feed me. You water me. You take me for a walk. You groom me. You give me a shelter. Man, you must be God. Cat, cat owners. Okay. You know exactly what I'm about to say. <laughs> you feed me. You give me water. You groom me. You give me a place to stay. I must be God. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. And what happens in humanity is there's dog and cat theology. For the true, not that dogs are any better than cats. Uh, cat's not bad with ketchup. No, I'm joking. But uh, people, there are certain people that the dogs, you know, God, you take care of me. You, you are everything. And then there's other people that said, man, I must be really something. Must be really something. And that's that humanism that comes in. These three worldviews are as pertinent today as, as John saw that day. You see hedonism, love of pleasure, man. That is what we're built on. And then there's consumerism, and then there is humanism. And these three things, uh, John says, do not love the world, the things of the world. And, he, and then he says this, those things are passing away. You've got to know those things are passing away. But the one who habitually does the will of God, he is the one that lives forever. <sighs> Temporary, forever. And that's what he lays out. So, the world test. How you doing? I mean, I'm the first one to be honest to say, depends on when you ask me. You know, the flesh is strong, isn't it? Good night. I'm glad Galatians uh, is there because it tells me that this battle between my flesh and spirit will continue on. And uh, until I'm out of here, I remember talking to a couple of men in their 80s one time, and and I just asked them. I said, "Man, does the does the when does the lust of the flesh go away?" And they said, "I don't know." In other words, they're still going at it. You know, it's still there. So I I, I know this is a battle you walk through, but John is laying it out here, man. If you're the real deal then your love for, for Christ is going to be greater than your love for the world. So what is our takeaway this morning? Here's our takeaway. I want to I share this with you. Between an airplane and every other form of locomotion and transportation, there is one great contrast. The horse and wagon, the automobile, the bicycle, the locomotive, the speedboat, and the great battleship all can come to a standstill without danger and they can all reverse their engines or their power and go back. But there is no reverse about the engine of an airplane. It cannot back up. It dare not stand still. If it loses its momentum and forward drives, then it crashes. The only safety for the airplane is in its forward and upward motion. And the only safe direction for the Christian is a forward and upward motion. We, as followers of Jesus, listen, I'm the first to say it's not easy. I thank God he gave us his spirit to walk this thing out. 
As long as we're on this planet, we are going to have struggles. And we're going to see that uh, we're going to be tempted to uh, not grow. We're going to be uh, think that uh, it's not important for me to grow my faith. And many people get bored. The best way I can think about it is this way sometimes. People did everything they thought they were supposed to do. I walked an aisle. I got baptized. I go to Sunday school. I go to church. I do those things. And then they get bored. Because what has happened is it's like if you had a video game with just one level on it and you played that video game over and over again on that one level, you, you would get bored. That's not the way video games are made. They go to a next level and a next level and a next level and a next level. It's that same way spiritually. No, you're not going to make it in this world, okay? You are not going to make it to the, to the, to perfection in this world, but God is moving you on. And so there's times when you're thinking, man, I'm doing real good, but all of a sudden God just kind of rocks you in something and say, man, he's taking you to a new level, taking you to a new level, taking you to a new level. And some people don't see it as a new level. It's because their old level got uncomfortable. God's doing that. Here's what I want to do. I, I, I just want to ask you a quick question, then I want to pray over us. Uh, if you're in this room, and uh, this, this isn't that hard a question, but if you're in, in this room and you have a close loved one or friend or coworker or something that at one time was walking with the Lord closely and is now drifted, would you just put your hand up right quick? You, you got them. Okay. All right. Most of you in this room, the question we ask is, what happened? Did they know Christ or did they just get spiritually sick or did they fall just in love with the world? What happened? But I want us to, I, I want you to pray and I want you just to, to picture the Lord in your mind and pray and take your friend or your, your, um, child or your spouse and just bring them to the foot of the Lord. Father, we pray right now. God, help us, help us. Because, Lord, we, we, we get concerned, and, and we don't know why this has happened. We don't know why their faith got boring. May, maybe they fell so much in love with this world, but this world is passing away, God, and they've got caught up in it. Lord, today we just lift them to you, and so right now, just, just give them to the Lord right where you're at, folks. Just whatever their name is, just give them to the Lord. Say, God, here they are. Put the real deal in their path. Put the real deal in their path, God. Let them see true Christ followers. Let them see Jesus. Let them see you, Lord. And then I want you to pray one more prayer with boldness before the Lord. Are you willing to pray, God, make me the real deal? Lord, I know some days I stumble. I know some days I fall. I don't represent your name well at times, but God, today, I just commit, I want to be the real deal. I want your spirit to invade me. I want to walk with you and know you intimately. Just spend a moment just making a declaration unto the Lord. I'm going to ask you to pray one more thing. Our students just got back from camp, and it's a great week. 
but you know as well as I do that a lot of times zeal and emotion can uh, can burn. And we we we're going to pray, God, seal what you've started. Let revival happen on campuses because of what you did.